And there's all these little like things that you do to qualify yourself as a punk. And then a lot of the comedy in the Gen X punks comes from, I think, letting go of those rules in one way or another. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? I'm ready. I'm Margaret Abels. I'm a mom of three, and I'm kind of like a laid back, I'm sure everything will work out just fine kind of a mom. I'm Amy Wilson. I'm also a mom of three, but I'm a little more of a planner, a header, expert researcher, think about it all really hard kind of mom. You're a book reader. You love your books. I love my books. Together we host the What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood podcast. Where every week we take our totally opposite parenting approaches and solve a parenting dilemma. We've solved travel sports. We've solved picky eaters. Yes. We've solved keeping your marriage alive while living with uh, small maniacs, which was an important one. That was very important. And we do it all with a little advice and a lot of laughs, plus some interviews with the experts. You can subscribe to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can find us at whatfreshhellpodcast.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Nancy, and I'm really glad you're tuning in today. I hope you're all having a good week and that someone has complimented you lately on your hair or your cooking or your incredible sense of direction. If not, let me be the first in line to say you are exemplary in something. You fill in the blank. Hey, it's only a week and change to go until the Midlife Mixtape live event at the Beta Brand Podcast Theater in San Francisco on Thursday, May 30th. I am accumulating a growing pile of stuff that I have to schlep over that night. I've got some Gen X selfie props. I've got audience prizes. I have a tiny mirror to check my teeth for spinach because, frankly, I'm not used to recording my podcast in front of a crowd. Um, I know there were at least a few tickets left when I checked this morning, and remember, they're free, but you do have to reserve them in advance. So you're going to hear live music. There's going to be a great interview with Joe Garofoli from the San Francisco Chronicle. It's going to be a whole thing. So head on over to the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page for event details and a link to get tickets, or you can find the link at Midlife mixtape.com in the sidebar. And I hope to see a whole bunch of you there. Today's guest is young. I have a millennial on today, you guys. Matt Sancom is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Hard Times, the most popular music satire site on the internet. Matt is a journalist and former music editor of San Francisco Weekly, who's also written for Vice, Rolling Stone, and several other publications. He started Hard Times in 2014 with $800, and five years later, the site's getting between two and six million views per month. So it's a huge success, and it's a really interesting story. Matt's also founded a new company called Outvoice to fix freelance contributor payments. And to be honest, this is my day job wheelhouse. I work in digital publishing licensing, and I can tell you Outvoice is pretty revolutionary, especially if you are one of those freelance writer types who depends on checks coming in from a whole bunch of different editors. Uh, One quick word of warning about today's episode. When I set this podcast up, I grabbed the E for explicit rating because I didn't want my guests to ever feel like they needed to censor themselves. And most of my episodes don't need it, but today's earned the E. So if you're listening with small people around you or at work, you may want to pause and adjust your headphone situation. 
So once you've done that, let's get the show on the road with Matt. So I'm here today on the Midlife Mixtape Podcast with Matt Sankum of The Hard Times. Matt, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's kind of a banner day, Matt, because I don't know if you know this, but you are the first millennial I've ever had on the program. You are by far the youngest guest I've ever had on the program. And there may be times in the next 30 minutes that I ask you to represent your entire generation. So no pressure. Let's go for it. All right, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. So first question, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? Hmm. First concert, my older brother took me to go see Catch-22 at the Pound in San Francisco. Um, I was uh, in elementary school. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. Okay. And the circumstances were I was fucking stoked. (laughs) (laughs) How much older was your brother? Uh, My brother, Ed, he is about three years older than me. Okay. Three or four. Okay. Yeah, three, I think. So Um, like a daytime show? I don't know the pound. Tell me, what is it? It's a punk venue. The pound was a venue kind of in a rough part of town. It was in Hunter's Point, uh, maybe... Uh, 15, fuck, 15 years ago, I yeah. guess. And it got shut down eventually, but it was, it's just like mostly like industrial yard and not a very welcoming sort of neighborhood. They had punk shows, but they had all sorts of shows there. And yeah, it's, uh, I went and I saw Catch 22 and I jumped up on stage and I started skanking <laughs> and then I, I stage dove off and then when I was after the show, I got my Catch Twenty Two shirt signed by uh, some of the band members. Now, were you like a mascot? Were you by far the young? I mean, if, if your brother was in seventh grade, you probably weren't the youngest by far. Like you didn't get the cute factor working for you. Yeah, I was a, a novelty because I was too young to be there. Yeah, but yeah, my older brother had just—he was always introducing me to and bringing me to music events. So yeah, that was probably my first show. So you you got started early. That's good. Ten was when I told my two daughters, you guys can each pick a concert. It has to be at the Fillmore because I wanted that to be the first place they ever saw a show. So I'd Mm -hmm. imprint them early. And in both cases, those kids got such special treatment like, hey, little kid, come on over here. We'll give you a t-shirt. You can sit, you know, not even in the front row. We're going to put you, one of the security guards brought my older daughter a chair so she could sit in front of the front row (laughs) at the Fillmore, like in front of, and then he kept reaching up and taking, I'd taken her to see Crowded House, which was my favorite band. Mm -hmm. He kept reaching up and taking their water bottles and being like, here, are you, are you thirsty, honey? He's like looking at me like, I think she needs water. I'm going to get her water. I'm like, great. I'm standing right behind her in the front row. It's working out. But you know, I always said to the kids, like, it just ruined you for being in a general admission crowd ever because, <laughs> you know, your expectations were set too high. I remember everyone was like patting me on the back and shit. <laughs> like people were very excited that I was there. So here's your chance. What is the best band that Gen Xers don't know about that they should be listening to right now? Hmm, I told you you didn't have to prepare anything. I didn't tell you I was going to put you on the hot seat like that. Yeah. So are we talking about uh, punk or hardcore bands? Sure. Whatever's, I mean, that's your, that's your main focus, right? I mean, that's, that's your love. Yeah. 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 So help me. Gen Xers are like 35 and up. Is that right? 1965 to 1980. So even the babies now are almost 40. Even the baby okay. Gen Xers. Oh, 40 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I mean, 40 year olds are, 40 year olds are missing out on a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> bands that are really exciting me in hardcore right now, I would say would be Turnstile and Angel Dust would be bands that they probably might have skipped them because the kids are into them. But um, you might have heard of them, though, because they're pretty popular and well-known. I'm trying to think of the last tour that came through where like everyone was super excited. It's interesting, you know, because like the last thing that 
everyone was really excited about was like it's like old people you know it's like uh, they were everyone was excited for death side My i feel friend, like okay i just want to warn you i'm 53 so when you start saying <laughs> old people i'm gonna take it personally real quick <laughs> okay uh some um seasoned we say vintage veteran veteran, veteran punks <laughs> although the thing about the punk scene is that there really is a pretty interesting mix of ages where like they're you know you go to a punk show there's even a little diy show in a basement or whatever there's gonna be there's gonna be some 40 year olds hanging out who have become like pillars of the community you know the the weird thing about the punk scene is you get started in it and you have a good time and and then you either kind of disappear or you become the person who does whatever like you become the label guy or you become the radio radio woman or you become the venue owner whatever it is you know you go to a punk show there's going to be a bunch of Gen Xers hanging out, I think. One of the weird things about the punk scene is how it turns into a bit of an extended family. I started going to shows when I was really young. And so now I go to shows and I see people and I realize that they've been my friend or at least my friendly acquaintance for 15 years. Right. And I'm not that old. I'm I'm 28. So it's like having a friend for 15, 18 years, it starts to feel like, damn, I've known this person forever. Yeah, and it, right? gets, and it gets better. It keeps getting better. That's the nice thing. You, you get to those 30 and 40 and 50 year friendships and you're like, yeah, I could never, this person's irreplaceable for me. So... My friend Scooch, my friend Scooch, Scooch. when I was really young, mm-hmm. when I was friend, yeah, all my punk friends have weird names. I was going around and I was following around this band, Monster Squad and Whiskey Rebels, and Pressure Point and Decoy. And they were like these Vacaville, Sacramento bands. And I was really into them. So I was at like every show. And Scooch was like a guy who he was from that area. And he would always jump into Monster Squad's van. So we just ended up becoming friends at the shows and hanging out. You know, we're kids, you know, we're, we're 15, right. 16 or whatever. And uh, now he runs Manic Relapse Fets, which is like the Bay Area's biggest punk festival. And it's just so funny. You know, we were just the kids, like the little baby kids hanging out. And now he literally runs the like the biggest event uh, in the Bay Area. So that's so cool. All right. Well, actually, this is a good segue into my first question. So Matt is the founder of The Hard Times, which is the most popular music satire site on the internet. And you can check it out at www.thehardtimes.net. And of course, I will leave links to everything we talk about in the show notes. But what I want to say that if you're listening and you're not a music fan, because there are midlife mixtape listeners who aren't into music at the same level I am, and I love them anyway. But even if you're not, the headlines over there are so immediately funny that I, a lot of times in the middle of the day, I'll just like skim over and just see what they've got. So I, I just grabbed the other day, I grabbed a selection of headlines that made me laugh. I didn't even go into the articles before I was laughing. So one was punk reflexively states not guilty during jury duty selection. (laughs) Um, Trans person crosses street to avoid overly supportive liberals. And this I love, this is the headline. I was Michael Jackson's aquarium cleaner for 15 years. And admittedly, this doesn't seem like a big deal in comparison, but that guy was a very irresponsible fish owner. That one was by Dan Rice. Your writers are hilarious. And these are, I mean, literally, those are just the headlines. But if you go in and read the articles, the articles are really funny. So I recommend it to you if you ever are just in the middle of your day and you need something to make you laugh, make sure you have the hard times bookmarked because you'll crack up. But the reason, Matt, that I tracked you down through our mutual friend, Michelle Threadgold, is that what was fascinating to me is that you have completely nailed the gestalt of the aging Gen X music fan. And let me give you a couple more headlines. These are the headlines mm-hmm. that I think give a window into how well you do this. You have punk dad bribes community college admissions with billions in exposure. <laughs> Parent who only saw last song of school choir tells kid, nice set. <laughs> 
And 38-year-old finally decides it's time to call it quits with MikeDirtRocks42 at AOL.com email address. How sad the guy has to finally grow up and get a real email address and not one based on a member, uh, the name of a member of Green Day. So it actually alarms me that you guys at the hard times are so young and yet you are writing stories that hit midlife music fans where they currently live. And it makes me a little worried for you. Like what's up over there? Why are you guys so tuned into <laughs> midlife woes? You still have your youth and beauty. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So there's two reasons. One reason is I started the website and I immediately brought on my co-founder, Bill Conway. Bill's a little bit older than I am. He's, I don't know, 30. I don't want to guess he's too, I'm going to say he's 33 or something. Yeah. Don't you be careful because Bill's going to come at you if you get it wrong. Yeah. So he had a little bit of a different perspective than I did. We created the website uh, together originally. We shortly added on my older brother, who's just a little bit older than I am. And then as we started creating headlines, we noticed that we had our own perspectives and we were honing our voice. But to really get this thing to hum, we would need to bring in more perspectives and more voices. So we opened it up kind of in like the uh, zine-like fashion of, hey, anyone have a submission? Go ahead and send it my way. You know, when you have a punk scene as a kid, I, I had a punk scene. But what we didn't realize was our website had gotten so popular that that meant we were going to be getting just a tidal wave of submissions nonstop. What ended up happening is we found some diamonds in the rough and some great writers of all different colors and stripes and ages. So, for example, I think the one about the parent and the choir, I think that is written by, at least the headline is written by Issa. And he played in the Washington, D.C. hardcore band Good Clean Fun. Um, and now mm -hmm. he has a family. He's been around the scene and he's seen it evolve. And he's that's his perspective, it's not my perspective, right? So he understands it and uh, I can see the humor in it. And then so we publish it. And uh, so that's that's reason one. Okay. So reason one is that we have a lot of different people and some of the people are uh, older than I am and have different perspectives. Okay. Reason number two is that I was really big into the punk scene. Like I was going to sh multiple shows every weekend. I was living in Oakland and it was like my main thing. I played in a band. I did DIY tours and I got kind of jaded on it. Once you start booking shows, uh, sometimes the internal politics of the scene can get such that it becomes a lot less fun. Right. When things become less fun, you start to be more critical about them and you start looking around and you start being nitpicky and understanding people's flaws and stuff like that a little bit more. So if you just go to a show, like the Catch-22 show I went to as a kid, you just have a great time, right? You don't know that so-and-so local ska band believes that they were shafted by not being put on the bill or that the third band wanted to play as the fourth band. And you don't know that, you know what I mean? That Right. You don't have to see how the sausage is getting made. Right. Yeah. And so once I got in there and I saw how the sausage was made and I really didn't like a lot of the stuff that I was seeing, I think that I got jaded enough to the point where I related a little bit more to people who had been around longer. I was a little bit less like my friends my age and a little bit more like my friends who were uh, a bit older than I was. I mean, it's just a goldmine of comedy material, thank goodness, because you guys are mining it every day. But I'm wondering if there are any specific Gen X tropes or stereotypes that resonate with your readers. I mean, we if any if any generation can poke fun at themselves, it's us, Generation X. We've had to do it all the way along. I think the character in the Hard Time story, the Gen Xer, is a little bit like when you get into to the punk scene, there's a lot of rules. And there's a lot of like social expectations, like most punks when they grew up, like they, uh, like, I don't like labels, man, you know, like I wear shirts that don't have labels on them. And I, and there's all these little like things that you do to qualify yourself as a punk. 
And then a lot of the comedy in the Gen X punks comes from, I think, letting go of those rules in one way or another. And I also think... Or holding on to them because you had one a couple weeks ago that was like a goth punk who had a rib removed rather than do exercise because exercise would make him too happy. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty freaking funny. Yeah, yeah. So it's like they, they either hold on to it so long. Like, so, okay, so the Keith Buckley of the band, Every Time I Die, he wrote a headline that was kind of like, child of rockabilly couple constantly wondering what the fuck is going on. Um, <laughs> and it's just like this picture of a, of, a ba- of a baby looking at a rockabilly parents being like, why are you guys dressing like it's the 50s, you know? Um, so, you know, there's just, there's just like a, there's just a little bit of absurdity in comedy in punk in general. I remember when I had like this huge mohawk and it was like it was like over a foot and I would get in my parents' car and I couldn't put my head up straight. <laughs> I had to tilt my head to be in the car. And I remember like it's funny, you know? Like it's goofy, like what am I doing? And so I think the punk scene just says a lot to mine there. And the character that we've started to develop a bit and I actually was I went to the Patreon offices and I was talking to them and uh, someone ran up to me and said, you know, you wouldn't expect it uh, just based on the way that she looked, but she, she grew up in the punk scene and she's like, anytime you guys write a headline that starts with aging punk, I just am all over it. Yeah, um, same. So I'm glad I'm glad that we're able to connect with multiple um, types of audiences. I think it's a credit to our writers and their their mixed backgrounds and stuff like that. But I think in the current era, having a satire site of any kind must be extra challenging because you're kind of staying one step ahead of reality. And, you know, obviously anybody, something like The Onion, who's covering political news, you can read something in The Onion on a Monday and the same headline appears in The New York Times on the Thursday. Uh Do you ever find that it's hard to write satire because real life has just gotten so strange in the, and you know, whether that's on the music scene or, you know, anything that you guys are looking at. Okay. So there's all these different satirical tools, right? There's like exaggeration, there's role reversal, there's alliteration, there's puns and wordplay. And, uh, there's just so many different tools that you can use. I don't think it's actually hard to write satire about things like Trump. It's just hard to write unique satire about things like Trump. And when things aren't unique, they come off flat and kind of lame. And that's something that we don't want to ever be. It's not hard to write those jokes because you can go turn on any talk show or late night talk show and just watch the monologue and it's, you know, 10 stupid Trump jokes. So like you can write those jokes and we, we try to a bit, but we really want to stand out a little bit more. And so you have to be super creative. I think something the onions done very successfully is to really get into the details and the emotion of the story. Mm -hmm. They ran this one headline that was something like presidential limo guns it around corner to try to throw Robert Mueller off the roof. And then like the photo is Robert Mueller, like holding on to the top of this limousine, like about to get flung from it. It's like an action movie, Mm -hmm. right? That extreme level of exaggeration is always going to be unique as long as you make it like very specific you know if you do just wordplay or just like a little bit of twisting of the news like you just flip something upside down you're always going to come across someone who's done that on twitter Um, but if you create a completely satirical environment that tells a story then you can get into some unique stuff that's still good so i would argue that it's it's not hard it's just different and not everyone 
tries hard enough. Right. <laughs> because some people only have a couple tools, right? They, they just throw the same tool at everything. And, and you can't do that for all the different topics. So like in the punk scene, it's a little bit easier. You know, also no one else is doing the punk thing. So like we can throw our tools at all these different scenarios and they always, you know, they'll come out okay. But when everyone is trying to do the politics, you know, and everyone is trying to do Trump, what tool are you going to have that no one else has? And everyone on Twitter is a comedian. Right. Yeah. And that's actually, we've had a couple articles that we write them up and then, oh, fuck. Right. There's a, a tweet that came went up an hour ago that's already viral, and we'll shut down our article just because we don't want to seem like we're ripping anyone right. off, even though we haven't. It's just parallel thought. It's so interesting. People think that it, like every time there's a similar joke out there, you've ripped someone off. It's like, check it out. If you came up with it, someone else could too. <laughs> <laughs> that can happen, and especially uh, because of the speed at which things are moving. People are doing a yeah. hot take every five minutes on something new. So, Yeah, the hot take stuff is... That's the hardest is the breaking news stuff. But if you do like the hard time stuff where it's about like an aging promoter taking money at the door, like no one on Twitter is going after that right. topic. Right? Good on you guys making a market, finding the vertical that, and, and being coming so successful with it too. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would have never really guessed. <laughs> but you, I mean, seconds before we hit record on this, you were booking a wrestling ring because the hard times universe has expanded. <laughs> so let's talk about that from this original website. I know you uh, produced lo- live punk shows in the Bay Area. There's a podcast. I think there's a TV show and book in the offing. Tell, fill us in. What what else is coming? So just launched a podcast network. We have two podcasts so far, one with the editors from Hard Times, one with the editors from Hard Drive, our video game vertical. We spread into video mm-hmm. games, and that's gone really well. That's, that's as big as Hard Times itself now. We have a book coming out in late 2019, holiday season, on HMH. I think the imprint is Mariner. I don't really understand that. You know, you sign a contract with one person and then they show me the galley for the book and there's a different logo on it. I'm like, all right, what? Mariner is actually a good imprint. I think like all like the Tolkien, like fucking Lord of the Rings stuff happened on there. I don't know. HMH is a really big publishing house. Um, Yeah. Lord of the Rings, hard time. Same thing. Yeah, same. So we have all that stuff. We have um, video projects. We have a one little micro web series thing that we're putting out. Um, I'm actually going down to shoot it on the 14th. And then we have... A TV show project, which we've been pitching around with no success. It's very hard to get a TV show um, going, but we have a great team. And just recently, we've decided to rejig the whole thing and team up with some people and turn it into, we have got some funding and we're going to turn it into a web series, we believe. That will be fun. I just booked my first wrestling event. So we do comedy tents and we show up at festivals and we do these fun things. And so at Punk Rock Bowling, which is a music festival in Las Vegas, after Rancid, the headlining band plays. When is that? Uh, that's uh, May 24th through the 27th. So on, yeah, on the 25th, Rancid, the headlining band plays. And then after they're done, five minutes from the festival ground, we have a no ring, no rules wrestling event. And I grew up watching wrestling. And so I'm super happy and excited to do that. So what does that look like? Wait, you get, before we leave that, because I don't really understand what a no ring, no rules. <laughs> is it just like a million people beating the crap out of each other? Or is it two at a time? How's that work? Before I sign up, I want to know what I'm getting myself into. Okay. So so the audience doesn't do any of the fighting, right? We've, we've got wrestlers to do the fighting for us. <sighs> It looks like a highly choreographed uh, bar fight that someone decided to let go. So there's just like a a group of people (laughs) standing around while two pro wrestlers throw each other through tables and stuff. It's a really good time. My friend from the punk scene, Madison, he runs this promotion called Suburban Fight Wrestling. 
and he's had a lot of success with it. And so I've always wanted to team up with him. And this is the first time we're teaming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited about that. And uh, we have a whole bunch of other stuff going on. You know, we uh, are relaunching our merch game, which doesn't sound that exciting, but I'm actually really excited about what we're doing because uh, when you're a punk and you have to like dress up for a family event or whatever, you wear Fred Perry's. That's like the punks getting dressed up. And we decided to make our own Fred Perry's, like completely replicated them. But like all the tags say hard times instead. And instead of the laurel wreath, it's the hard times logo boot on the chest. And we're launching a um, non-satirical music and culture blog, um, which I'm really excited about. And that will be using our new payment system that I developed with Issa called Outvoice. What you just described, I'd like to commend you. It looks like a midlife mixtape. It looks like a lot of people who come on this show by the time they're in their 40s and 50s, have tried a bunch of different things or have realized that they've come to the end of one thing and they want to try something else mm-hmm. that's always been kind of scratching at them. So I love the fact that you you are getting into that game early. You're trying a bunch of different stuff. And I will tell you, if there's one thing I've learned from doing 54 interviews, it's that people wish that they're either glad that they embrace change and opportunity when they had the chance or they wish they'd done more of it. So mm. keep, I think it's awesome. And we'll definitely keep tabs on all the different stuff you're trying because the the, the people who have regrets are the ones who say, well, I don't think I want to try it. It might not work out. Don't ever get in that mindset because you, you'll regret it later. Yeah, thanks. I'll try. That's my advice. For I'll today. try. But you graduated with a journalism degree. Did you right. expect to be doing a music satire site at any point? Was that part of your plan? No, I had a journalism degree, but I started noticing that all the articles that got me the most praise and readership and uh, attention were the ones where I injected a whole bunch of my own comedy and humor into them. And I started to think, well... If people are coming to the site to read my humor and my comedy, uh, why don't I just own the whole website? So that was kind of like first seed of an idea was if people like my comedy, I should own it. I shouldn't sell it to someone for 50 right. bucks or whatever. And so that that's kind of where it started. You started your own site. Uh-huh. I'm kind of a weird guy. You were talking about wanting to try a whole bunch of stuff. I actually like when I go to sleep at night, my brain like keeps thinking of different things that I could do, even really silly things, like stupid mm-hmm. things. Like I have like these stupid inventions. It's like thinking about like uh, tall skyscrapers that are on fire. And I keep thinking of this idea of like these like airships almost like these inflatable rafts with parachutes that you could get put 20 people on then they all jump off like really like random stuff and i'm always thinking about like different things i could create i have this weird need to create all these things and uh, i usually come up with ideas and then i eventually discount them or discredit them or found out someone had a better thing and if i can't figure that out within three or four months then like i feel like i have to do it the thing with the hard times was I saw that there was the New York Times and then there was Vice. And I was reading all these like glamorous media profiles of Vice. Like they do things differently. They're millennials. They don't care. They go to war zones. And they were positioning themselves as the New York Times is super time honored and traditional and more younger and more different. And I thought about how The Onion was super time honored and a legacy brand to produce all this great stuff, but that there was no Vice Onion. And I thought about that. And I thought, that's so weird. Why does that not exist? You know, because the main character in an onion story, you know, 45 year old dad, wife, kids, Moses Lawn, right? And with the hard times, we wanted to do you're in a band, you have a shitty roommate, and you have depression, right? It's like a different right. overall thing. Like the concerns of the onion character aren't the concerns of the hard times character. And I thought that that would work. And so I often tell people I had no idea the website was going to become popular, but I did have a hope. I did think. 
it seems like Vice should have a satirical platform, and it seems like Onion should have a younger competitor. And I felt like that was a hole in the media landscape that I thought I could fill. So I did kind of have a little bit of a grandiose notion of what would maybe one day happen. About a year or a year and a half after we had launched the website, actually both The Onion and Vice had reached out to us to do some business together. And I thought about how cool that was that the two people who I had used to model the thing off of had both immediately recognized it as an opportunity. So Outvoice must be an idea that you had as you fell asleep at night. This is a platform to fix freelance contributor payments. So tell us about that. How did that come up? And how is it being used now? Yeah. I've never believed in or been happier to be working on something in my life than Outvoice. Hard Times is a great company and I've made so many friends through it and I feel like we've done some good work, but not to get overly dramatic. I went on a hike with one of my friends and we were in the Oakland Hills and there was a cemetery up there and there was like, this guy had died and there obviously, right, cemetery. Uh, there was like this little monument thing and it was like really tall. So I went to go look. I was like, who's this guy, right? And it said, he gave the people a choice. Uh-huh. And I, so I Googled him, right? His quote was like, the people needed a choice. And I, I, I Googled him. And pretty much what he had done was he had created water fountains all over, public water fountains. They didn't exist really that much where he was living. And he felt like people needed a choice between everyone was just drinking beer. And he said, well, they don't have an easy choice to drink water. So we need clean water fountains. Now that's his legacy, right? He built the clean water fountains. (laughs) It seems like a simple, obvious thing that we would expect someone else to have that idea, but no one quite got around to doing it, right? What Outvoice is, I think, is my notion of trying to give publishers a choice. And so if you're a freelance writer... I know where you're going with this, having been on the receiving end uh, of it. You've experienced this for, firsthand. I was a full-time freelance writer for a little while. The way it goes is every publisher has their own system. They have their own paperwork. They have their own onboarding process. They have their own accounting team. And most of them border on broken to just mm-hmm. ancient to inefficient. Every once in a while, some are okay. But most places, not the best, right? And then, so I, I, I decided this, okay, this is a huge problem, right? But I thought, and I think most freelancers still think this, I thought, oh, this is only a problem for freelancers, and that's why it's not fixed. So I understood it, and I kind of said, okay, this is never going to get fixed. I like admitted defeat. Then I became a full-time editor at SF Weekly, and I had to do the invoices myself at the end of the month, and it took me an entire day out of my time I was able to work. And I had to print out these invoices and sign them. And I'll never forget my editorial director coming up to us and saying, hey, uh, I'm going to need you to use this. And he was holding this wooden contraption with all these flaps on it. And I'm going, for what? And, it, and he says, you need to alphabetize your invoices before you walk them down the hall to what he called accounting, but it wasn't really accounting. It was just in like an HR person who was overworked and it will help them if they're all alphabetized. And so I remember like printing out these pieces of paper, signing my name on them and then putting them in this wooden contraption and then looking around and being like, <laughs> we're in San Francisco. This is like the high tech center of the world. And we're supposed to be a digital first media company at this point. But at your desk, it was 1873. Right. We're like, what are we doing? This is like Hearst Castle sort of stuff, right? Like this is old timey journalism stuff. What are are we doing? I grew up when you could just, you just PayPal people, you know, and you Venmo people. And it's just a lot easier to move money. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, I guess whatever. 
So it's a problem for editors, it's a problem for freelancers. I guess just the business side, the, the publisher side doesn't care. Then I became the publisher of Hard Times, and I started looking around for ways to pay my people, and I noticed I had a whole bunch of shit options, and that none of them were really built for publishing. It's all built for like house painters and lawnmowers, but then they right. bend it to fit publishing, but only kind of. And so I kind of just got obsessed with this notion of how much time does my organization spend doing this? Like freelancers, editors, publishers, accounting. And I started to dig into it. And at the bigger publications, they were talking about hundreds of hours of just nonsense. And then I started to really dig into it. And I started thinking about, you know this because you're a freelance writer. When you're a freelance writer, you pitch someone, an editor, you pitch them a story idea. And then they send you back uh, an approval or a rejection. And then you agree upon a price. And then you write the piece. And then the editor publishes the piece. So the invoice is, even in that situation, it's kind of like a repeated step. Because the editor and you have already agreed upon a price. So you're just writing down the same price again. It's not like a per hour work often. So I have this notion of what if you could build something that was truly built for publishing, it existed right inside of the content management system, meaning WordPress or Drupal or whatever, and it was radically faster Mm -hmm. than all this stuff. Like it circumvented all of the nonsense. There was no wooden contraption. There was no walking it down the hall. There was no lost check in the mail. Could you build that thing? And I just started tinkering and writing things down and trying to figure it all out. And I eventually teamed up with my friend Isa, who's a great developer. And we worked on it. We've been working on it for about a year now in private, testing it on hard times. And now we just opened it up for beta for a couple different publishers. And it's a real problem because if if you're a freelance writer, you likely have, I don't know, five or 10 different editors who you're working with. You're working on a bunch of stories at the same time. Some publications pay at submission. Most of them pay when you publish. But if I turn it in today, it's not going to get published for three more months. So then I got to remember to go back 30 days after my pub date to see if anybody paid me. And I have learned from hard experience to submit the invoice when I submit the story, because then at least I know that I've done my part of it. But who knows when I'm going to get paid back for this. So it's very hard to predict cash flow. I'm so happy with what's happened. It's really, really revolutionizes the whole notion of how people get paid at, at publications. So when you write for the hard times or any other place that uses Outvoice, you get paid in a more reasonable and effective manner than at the New York Times or Rolling Stone or SF Weekly or anywhere. Uh, it's it's crazy. Thank you for making it easier for people in the gig economy since we appear to be stuck in it from now on. So, All right, Matt, one final question. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I think that you should try not to become specialized at anything too soon. That instead you should try to do a whole bunch of different things and play a whole bunch of different roles And that way you can learn about the bigger picture and you can take information away from each role. So if you are going to be a writer, don't just write poetry, write lyrics, write essays, do some actual journalism, and then you'll learn from each one of those subcategories and you'll be able to be a better poet. So that's something that I've I've learned is the more you go out and do different things, you can take that idea and apply it to other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when I grew up, I the first thing I got really passionate about was online poker. And uh, that, that ruined some people's lives. But for me, it taught me a lot about risk versus reward and uh, return on investment and all these different notions. And that actually has really helped me create a media company with 800 bucks that ended up generating much more, right? So it's very weird to tell someone who wants to be in the media world, go play some poker. But I think you should, maybe if you play baseball, you learn about on-base percentages and you'd be able to apply it as well. So 
um, yeah, try a bunch of stuff when you're young. And when you're middle-aged, keep trying stuff. Don't stop. That's the that's the takeaway. All right. Well, Matt saying come from The Hard Times. I hope you guys will check it out. And thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you finally. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Matt. If you're feeling oppressed by the seemingly relentless onslaught of bad news, I strongly urge you to find a way to make yourself laugh a few times every day. You could apply hard times medicinally, is what I'm saying. Like today's headline, which was, Four guys standing in a field are somehow not a band. Another way to stave off outrage fatigue, I hope? My new book, which comes out in December and is available now for pre-order, The Thank You Project, Cultivating Happiness, One Letter of Gratitude at a Time, provides a really easy-to-follow path for getting more gratitude into your life, which research shows really is an effective way to become happier. And I hope it will make you laugh, too. I'm currently reviewing page proofs, which is when you get to see the actual layout of the book and all the interior illustrations, including mixtapes, yes. So that's a big step closer. You can find all the details on midlifemixtape.com or look for the Thank You Project on Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Amazon. The next episode, God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, will be the audio of the live episode at Beta Brand. I'm not exactly sure what date that will be published because I have to get the tape back from Beta Brand, but I will make sure to make a lot of noise about it on social media when the time comes. So if you're not already following at Midlife Mixtape on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter, now's the time. That's the word, you guys. I hope you have a wonderful week. I don't want to be this, don't want to be that, don't want to give up, I want to give back. I want to be free by whatever means, whatever you want from me, I want to be. Don't want to be this, don't want to be that, don't want to give up, I want to give back. I want to be free by whatever means, whatever you want from me, I want to be, be, be. I wanna be, I wanna be free by my